when you're the part of casts, having so little fun together. You're not even aware you're such a funny pair. You're the part of casts. <laughs> That's it. I'm not going all loud for this one. <laughs> I accidentally spoiled this one for you before we started recording. Mm-hmm. I said I was doing this. Yes. But as you pointed out, it's the only song. It's true. There's like officially five songs, but this is the only one with anything to it. And any length, all the other ones are super short. The other songs are what you or I would call poems. Mostly, yeah. The one that sticks out the most to me and that I intended to do is the one where Big Mama's going like, elimination, lack lack of of education. education. Yeah. There's almost no music to that. And the one bit of music there is, I truly could not get to stick in my head (laughs) long enough to do the bit. Like, I just, I was like, please, song, will you go in the head? And it's like, absolutely not. Uh, Yeah, the only part of it I can remember is the part we just did. Right, where the, like, and the bird gets shot and he goes like, lack of education. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, (laughs) there's uh, there's goodbye may seem forever, which is just the old woman being like, we met, it seems, such a short time ago. You looked at me, needing me so. And I thought it would be funny to do that, but I was like, People are going to feel ripped off because we always do a song. Yeah, that one's definitely just a poem. Just because the fox and the hound counts that as a song. We have higher standards. <laughs> we have much higher standards than the fox and the hound. Yep. <sighs> Which I suppose we better talk about now, huh? Yeah, that's what we're here for. Everybody and welcome to Me, Mom, and the Mouse, a podcast about the joy <laughs> of watching cartoons with your family. We're watching every film in the Disney animated canon and talking about how it was made, what it means, and why we love it. Or don't. <laughs> my name is Isaac Coleman, and I'm joined as always by my mother, my big mama, if you will, <laughs> Rue Coleman. I'm now the smallest in the family, so, you know. <laughs> Hello, Isaac. Hello. And we do want to give a special shout out to our editor, Brad Murray of Oak Studios. Thanks for all that you do. Although I will note, Brad, if you pal around with that copper hound, you'll wind up hanging on the wall. So keep your nose to the wind and you keep your skin because you won't be home when the hunter comes to call. (laughs) No one will be able to remember what quote unquote song that's from. But it is from one of them. Isn't that the elimination one? It is. You are correct. I guess I I (laughs) overestimated. But this week on the program, we are continuing the Bronze Era, a.k.a. the Dark Age, and we are heading into the part that is commonly referred to as uh, the Dark Age or the Garbage Era or the This Movie's Very Bad Era. (laughs) And we are doing so with 1981's The Fox and the Hound, directed by, as credited, Ted Berman, Richard Rich, and Art Stevens. This one definitely seemed to be one of those where the list of people in the actual credits is not the list of everybody who was involved. Yeah, we'll talk about it quite intentionally. So there were a lot of people who asked to have their names not on this movie, in fact. (laughs) Uh, And there were other people who got screwed out of credits on this movie. So for various (laughs) reasons, this thing was a mess. Uh, But at least it led to a really great 
film that was definitely worth it. <laughs> Mom, what does this cinematic masterpiece mean to you? Well, I have probably only seen this movie once before we watched it for this podcast. So I don't really have any nostalgia for it because I'm pretty sure I was an adult when I saw it. And it doesn't really stick with me. It doesn't mean much to me. <laughs> Does it mean anything to you? Uh, I've always considered it one of the worst. <laughs> I mean, yeah, that. And I still do. Um, this is a movie that I watched in school. I can't remember the exact context. I think it was before Thanksgiving break or some similar situation where it's like, none of you little brats are paying attention. We're putting on a movie. <laughs> and I don't think this would be a good movie for that because this movie will not hold the attention of an elementary school child. All I remembered about it before this rewatch was the basic premise and how there didn't seem to be much going on beyond the basic premise and how it was very boring. And in that sense, I remembered it perfectly. Exactly. <laughs> we mentioned it at the end of the last episode. This is one of the episodes we've been looking forward to doing the least because we've been like, how do you talk about the fox and the hound? There's nothing there. <laughs> but before we started watching it, I had read several positive reviews of it. So I was going in being like, I don't remember this one. As always, you know, when we watch these things, I want to like them. Yeah. So I was like, you know, let's see what's here. Maybe there's more than I remember. And looking at the credits, we kind of got excited because we were like, ooh, Kurt Russell's in this? Yeah. Ooh, Paul Winchell is in this? Mickey Rooney? Then pretty quickly we were disabused of that. And the, the experience of watching this movie is what I imagine it would be like to get your blood sucked by a vampire. <laughs> Slowly drained. I just felt like I didn't have any energy at all afterwards. I felt tired <laughs> and not just, you know, I don't like this movie. Yeah. I, I spoilers for <laughs> our recommendations. I don't like it. It's true. Do you have any additional thoughts before we head into the messy history of this movie? I also was hoping I would like it better as that the rewatch, you know, because we've been doing more learning about it and it is very interesting to be watching them in order I do remember that the first time I watched it, I was excited to see it because I'd never been able to see it before. So it was one of those like, I've never gotten to see this Disney animated movie and it would be fun to watch it and then being disappointed at the end. So that's about my only memory <laughs> from this previously. So yeah, we can talk about the weird history of how the Fox and the Hound came to be. Is there somewhere specific you want to start with this? I mean, I could start with Don Bluth. I could start with Willie Reitherman. I could start with the book. Well, I think we should start with the book because the book came first. So it's based on a book by Daniel Mannix of the same name. I mean, the book has the same name. <laughs> Not that his name is the same as something. And it had a very different story. It certainly did. Uh, the book in question. Now, Daniel Mannix wrote a book that was adapted into another movie. Do you happen to know what movie that is? I do not. If I tell you that the book was called Those About to Die, does it tell you what movie it might be? Um, that would be the 2000 epic historical drama Gladiator. Oh. Directed by Ridley Scott. No, I didn't realize. Fox and the Hound and Gladiator. <laughs> and I have to say, Mannix is a very interesting guy. 
uh, mostly in ways that are not very relevant to this book or uh, to this movie, rather. But he was a naval lieutenant with the Photoscience Laboratory in World War II. He worked as a sword swallower and fire eater in a carnival sideshow. He was a skilled stage magician and collector of illusions. Sounds like an interesting guy. He witnessed the death of the famed herpetologist Grace Olive Wiley, who was demonstrating to him like her some of her snakes when she was fatally bitten and and the snake bit her and he tried to save her, but he broke her vial of antivenom and and she ended up dying like it's just a fascinating man. <laughs> Absolutely fascinating man. He lived more than most of us ever will. And he wrote the book, The Fox and the Hound. Now, as you say, I read a little bit of this book. I don't know if you've ever read this book. I've never read the book, but I did read the synopsis of, of it. The book is very different. I was surprised reading the book uh, that I actually enjoyed it. I, I kind of assumed this started with the source material because this doesn't seem like a premise you could do a lot with. The book is actually quite interesting. One of the things about it that is the most interesting and that got it a lot of praise at the time and that got it the attention that would lead to it being acquired by Disney is that it really is written from the perspective of the fox and the hound. And Mannix really tried to figure out how animal thought processes might work. And that it seemed like he he was trying to make this story as realistic as possible. It reminded me of like Bambi, the book of, you know, about the book of Bambi and stuff like that. But yes, it's, it's much more realistic. It's much darker. Uh, and the Fox and the Hound are never friends in it. Instead, their relationship is more like, based on what I've read, I kind of compare it to the movie, the prestige where it's like, it's two characters who hate each other but they're also kind of perfect for each other. Like they're the only two who understand each other, right? They have this weird obsession. Like one of the things that happens later in the book is that like Todd's life changes so much. Uh, the vixen who's not named a vixie, by the way, ends up dying <laughs> and like so much of his life changes that he starts to look forward to the multiple hunts uh, when Copper and the master hunt him. Uh, because that happens many times throughout the book, not just once. He starts to look forward to it because it's the only constant in his life. So they have a much stranger, much more complex relationship than the one in the movie. And there's also, as you say, it's like a lot more realistic to animals. So it's a lot more violent because hunting is violent and animals are violent and foxes kill other animals to eat them. It also deals a lot with, I'm going to say what, happens when a boy fox and a girl fox love each other very much for the <laughs> sake of our younger listeners. But that is like the that type of relationship, what we'll say is a romantic relationship. is a very big part of the book. Uh, and so once again, like so many of these Disney adaptations we've been talking about in this era, not really good fodder for a Walt Disney movie, not good fodder for a family film. <laughs> I would argue not good fodder for a film in general because the book is fairly plotless. But what's so interesting about it is reading it from the perspective of these animal characters. Right. Mm -hmm. Which is presumably why it's called The Fox and the Hound. Right. Because you're from their perspective. Right. And it's much more kind of psychological in that sense, mm -hmm. which you can't really translate to a movie. 
I mean, we've talked about how the Disney animators in various films have done interesting things to put you at like the visual perspective of animals. Mm -hmm. But unless you have just running constant voiceover, which would be awful, then, you know, you can't really adapt that part of the book. And so Walt Disney obtained the film rights to the novel in 1967. Walt Disney Productions, I should say. I, I don't believe Walt himself had any involvement with it. Well, no, because the move, the novel came out in 67 and he died in 66. Right. But in 77, Wolfgang Reitherman, who, as we've talked about, is sort of the unofficial head of Disney animation, I would say at this time. Uh, he decided that it would make a good animated feature. And he was originally going to be the director along with Art Stevens. And Art Stevens was seen as the younger director. And that's one of the big things with this movie. We've talked about some of the struggles at Disney, and I'm going to get into it more here in a moment, of, you know, we have the younger class of animators and we have the older class of animators. This movie was supposed to be the handoff. And so the idea was, well, we'll have Wolfgang Reitherman directed. Obviously, he's been directing all of these things. Uh, and we'll have Art Stevens direct it. Now, I do want to say, when work started on this movie, Art Stevens was 62. And he's the young blood. <laughs> and he is seen as the young blood. That will tell you how old Disney animation was at this time. Wow. And how long these guys who were the quote-unquote young blood had been waiting to get any sort of power or involvement with the movie. Another guy who rose to prominence at this time is Ron W. Miller, Ron William Miller, who was Walt Disney's son-in-law. And he was really who Walt was grooming to be his successor because Walt really wanted someone from the Disney family to be his successor. And there were kind of two candidates. One was Ron Miller, his son-in-law, as mentioned. The other was Roy E. Disney, the son of Roy O. Disney, and thus Walt's nephew. And the Rons and the Waltz, you know, the, the two halves of the family, the, the brothers' families, you know, the, there was a lot of power struggle involved in this as well. Roy E. Disney was not very well respected. Many of Walt's closest kind of associates and co-workers would refer to him as the idiot nephew. Oh. It's not... It's not known whether or not Walt himself used his nickname, but considering how many people around him were saying it, I have my suspicions. And uh, so Roy E. Disney was probably never going to send the throne. Now, Roy E. has nothing but good things to say about Walt, at least publicly. He likes to tell stories about how Walt would come over and read him like the story of Pinocchio while they were working on the movie and the two of them were both interested in toy trains. And so they would play with their toy trains together. So, you know, I don't want to speak for any members of the Disney family and say how they felt about each other. I will say Roy E. Disney turns out not to be the idiot nephew. As we continue to go through uh, Disney history, he actually turns out to be a very shrewd businessman and he will eventually take over the animation side of Disney. But Ron Miller would end up being more in charge of animation at this time. He eventually, uh, in 1980, he became president of Walt Disney Productions, which at Disney was the second highest role. And he would briefly become CEO in 1983 as part of a very complex, year-long, weird power struggle uh, that ended up with Michael Eisner being the actual CEO, which I don't know how much we'll cover on this podcast because it's not super relevant. 
other than the fact that Disney was in massive turmoil in the 80s. But right now he is the president of Walt Disney Productions and he is in charge of the animation and he also sees himself very much as part of the young blood, even though he was not that young either. And he wanted to do new things. He created the Disney Channel. He created the Touchstone label to have more adult films. None of these things would actually happen yet by the time Fox and the Hound came out. Uh, But it shows you the kind of guy he was. He was interested in stop motion animation. So he funded Tim Burton's early films, Vincent and Frankenweenie. He got the Who Framed Roger Rabbit project started. Uh, and he was an early adopter of computer animation. Uh, He was apparently one of the people pushing Tron in 1982. But of course, until that brief one-year stint in 83, when he became the actual CEO, sort of, kind of, he had to report to Card Walker. And we talked about Card Walker a lot last week and how he just would not let anything interesting happen. So because Ron Miller still reports to Card Walker, there's only so much he can do in terms of changing what uh, Disney movies are like at this time. But again, he saw himself as a younger person and as part of this quote unquote younger group. And so he would back Art Stevens and Stevens and Reitherman argued so much about this movie. Mm -hmm. And with Ron Miller, the president, taking Stevens side. Eventually, he ordered Reitherman to surrender Reigns over to the junior personnel. But Reitherman resisted because he didn't trust the young animators. Quote, unquote, young. (laughs) Yeah. But he was eventually uh, taken off the project because all of the young people kind of hated him and hated his additions. One thing he did was he thought that the film needed a stronger second act, which it does. And he decided to add a musical sequence of two swooping cranes voiced by Phil Harris and Charo, who would sing a silly song titled Scooby Dooby Dooby Doo, Let Your Body Turn to Goo, to Todd after he was dropped in the forest. Um, cranes? (laughs) Oh yeah, that's the weirdest part. Not let your body turn to goo. Well, it's the let your body turn to goo paired with cranes like they're not carrion eaters like this sounds like a vulture song to me i think the idea of let your body turn to goo is like because you're dancing so much like you just let yourself go oh and so chero had actually recorded her half of the song uh chero i didn't know this and i hope i'm saying it right probably not was the stage name of a spanish american actress singer comedian and guitarist it's probably at least more like charo Charo, probably, you're right. She recorded the song and uh, it had started being storyboarded and, quote, live action reference footage was shot of her in a sweaty pink leotard. (laughs) I have a lot of questions about that. But the younger people who were trying to really do this story justice and generally make it more serious, again, younger, like Stevens was leading this charge, were like, no, (laughs) we're trying to make this serious movie about like death and being kind of a metaphor for like prejudice and we're talking about society. You can't, at the the moment where Todd is abandoned, you cannot have two cranes, one voiced by Phil Harris, show up and sing this absurd song. (laughs) You mean like something that the geese would do in Aristocats or? Even the Aristocats is a sillier movie from the start than this. But oh, yes. it is. But that's basically what's going on, it sounds like. Exactly. We're and- just going to introduce a couple random creatures, give them a silly song, 
And so there were a lot of arguments, a lot of story conferences. Eventually, the scene was removed. Reitherman apparently walked into Stevens's office, slumped in a chair and said, I don't know, Art, maybe this is a young man's medium. Again, he's saying this to a 62 year old. (laughs) He would then move on to several undeveloped projects. He worked on some other stuff at Disney. None of it ever got published, but he left feature animation. And uh, in 1985, he would die in a car accident, which is awful. I mean, we've we've had our complaints about Wooly Reitherman, but that's, you know. We're not going to make a jokes about that. That's horrible. Yeah. That shouldn't happen to anyone. Well, and it's not like we complain about everything he did. I really like some of the movies he was the director on. No, absolutely. But it, you can't. It doesn't work for every story. Fox and the Hound, even when you're watching it, feels like they couldn't decide what they were trying to do. Certainly not. And it really shows that. They couldn't decide what they were trying to do. Is this a serious movie more like the book where, you know, characters actually die and, you know, or is it something light and fluffy? We're just going to have a fun story about a friend, unlikely friends. Yep. So let's talk about Don Bluth, uh, which I've been promising we would do for a while. Okay. Don Bluth. Don Bluth, if you will, was born on September 13th, 1937. He was the oldest of seven children, which maybe is less surprising when you find out that his family was very Mormon. They moved to Utah when he was six. He lived on a farm. He worked on a farm. Bluth remembers that time as, quote, milking 24 cows morning and night and singing Disney songs. Even then, I was honestly dreaming of working at the Disney studio. Um, And this is because when he was seven... He went to see Snow White in theaters and apparently he went straight home and tried to draw Snow White, the dwarfs, all of them. Like his obsession began immediately, not only with, oh, I love Disney. That's amazing. But I want to draw this and make this. And he says, quote again, this all, by the way, comes from uh, a basically biography called The Animated Films of Don Bluth by John Colley. But he said, quote, I'd ride my horse to the movie house in town and tie him to a tree while I went in and watched the latest Disney film. Then I'd go home and copy every Disney comic book I could find. In 1954, the family moved to Santa Monica, California. Good place to be if you want to get into animation. Definitely. After a year at Brigham Young University in Utah, he brought a portfolio to the Disney studio in Burbank and was immediately hired as an assistant animator, and that's when he started working on Sleeping Beauty, Mm -hmm. which I believe we mentioned in that episode. Right. Two years later, he left to go on a mission for the Mormon church to Argentina, because that's a thing that Mormons have to do. You're supposed to go on a mission. Yep. He worked at Disney. He, He comes back. He returns to Los Angeles. He continues to work in animation and theater. He comes back briefly to work on Sword in the Stone, but it's a part-time job for him. He's just an assistant. In 1967, he begins working at Filmation, where he worked in layout. Um, And he said, quote, I realized that all of that industry out there was really making trashy art that wasn't good for kids to look at (laughs) and eventually ended up in the trash can anyway. Everything was for money. Nothing was for art. I grew tired of that and said, well, if I'm going to do this for a living, why don't I go back to Disney? Because they do it right. So in 1971, he goes back to Disney. He goes through their new training program 
uh, with a bunch of other animators who may not all have been in the same training program, but we're certainly going through the same program around the same time, including John Lasseter, who goes on to be one of the main people behind Pixar uh, and also becomes head of the Disney studio, uh, Disney animation studios, rather, uh, in the 2000s. We will talk about him a lot. Musker and Clements, director of Little Mermaid and Treasure Planet and Moana. Directors. Directors, of course, uh, because they are two people and not one combined uh, freakazoid. But Musker and Clements, (laughs) we're also going to talk about a lot. Glenn Keane, we're not going to talk about too much, but amazing animator. He becomes one of the top animators. And he is just one of the best. Uh, Tim Burton, who is Tim Burton? I assume you know who Tim Burton is. (laughs) Brad Bird, who would go on to do the Iron Giant and the Incredibles movies. Henry Selleck, who directed The Nightmare Before Christmas. Yes, Tim Burton gets credit for it. He didn't have much to do with it. Henry Selleck also directed James and the Giant Peach and Coraline. So as you can tell, he's a stop motion guy. Yeah. Chris Buck, who would co-direct Tarzan and Frozen and Frozen 2 uh, and Surf's Up, but we won't hold that against him. (laughs) Mike Gabriel, co-director of The Rescuers Down Under and Pocahontas, and we will hold that against him. (laughs) Uh, Mark Dindle, who would go on to direct Cats Don't Dance, which is not a Disney movie, but a movie I really like. The Emperor's New Groove and Chicken Little, for which he should be sent to prison. (laughs) Emperor's New Groove spares him the electric chair, but he still has to go to prison because he made Chicken Little. I don't like Chicken Little, but... (laughs) Spoilers. (laughs) Spoilers indeed. But, you know, these are all very important animators, and there are many more besides. And so he's entering with all of them, and he kind of quickly distinguishes himself. Of his new training group, he was the first to reach the rank of animator after... Two months of training, which, to be fair, he had been animating for Disney off and on for a while. It's true. His first project as animator was Robin Hood. And then we talked about his work on Winnie the Pooh and Tigger 2. And as directing animator on The Rescuers, he also directed animation on Pete's Dragon. But he's getting increasingly frustrated, as are most of the other people who we just named. And the reason is because they all... By and large, these guys were all huge Disney fans. They are old enough that they came here because they love Disney, right? Like Brad Bird, you know, they saw Snow White and were like, this is amazing. I have to do this. And they practically worshipped the nine old men, at least before they got there. (laughs) But once they did, the nine old men didn't respect them. I remember Wolfgang Reitherman is one of the nine old men. I think his attitude was very typical. They didn't respect them. They didn't want to give them any actual control. They thought they knew better. Mm -hmm. Uh, Obviously, we have Card Walker at the top of the company who say you cannot do anything that was not personally approved by Walt Disney's corpse. (laughs) And so they found the whole experience extremely frustrating. And one thing that was frustrating to Bluth was that he was constantly being told, like, you are going to become one of our next directors. You are going to take over for Wolfgang Reitherman. You are going to do all of the directing and you were going to be in charge of it. But whenever he asked the nine old men for like help to learn more because he is passionate about animation, he wants to learn more. They wouldn't help him. They wouldn't teach them stuff. They weren't interested in teaching. They didn't want these upstarts taking their job. And, you know, they saw Bluth as like, oh, this guy wants to steal our job. And Bluth is just like, I want to have a job. Yeah, yeah. I want to do something. So 
at Disney, he meets Gary Goldman and John Pomeroy. And these three are really the people who will found uh, Don Bluth Productions. They agreed to put his name on it because they thought it would sell better with one name and like this big story of one guy like Walt Disney, (laughs) which was very smart. Yes. But it really is. And Don, to his credit, is very open about this. It really was the three of them. Don Bluth, Gary Goldman and John Pomeroy. They were very much a team. And in 1973, they get sick of the fact that they're being taught animation to a certain extent, but they are not being taught film production, which supposedly they're going to be taking over. Yeah. And so they decide to write, direct and produce their own animated short film, along with several other Disney artists in Don's garage. (laughs) Quote, people thought we used the garage on purpose because Walt Disney started in a garage, but we weren't that shrewd. We simply couldn't afford any place else. My living room had blackout curtains up and was the projection room. My family room was the camera room. My bedroom had editing equipment in it for years, and the kitchen and patio were the commissary. Any money we had, we put into filmmaking equipment and things that show on the screen. (laughs) After a couple of false starts, they decide to make the short film Banjo the Woodpile Cat. And what they're really trying to do is teach themselves how to do the classical animation style of the golden era. So they're trying to imitate that type of animation and like, figure out how to actually do it because the nine old men won't tell them or don't remember or whatever. Yeah. And they worked on this as I, in that quote, four years for five years, in fact. And that shows how obsessed these guys were. They they're animating all day for super long hours at Disney, Hmm. then coming home and making another film right now before the five years of working on it, but near the end of it, uh, I believe this was around 78, 79. They showed this movie to Ron Miller. This is a quote from Gary Goldman. It was mid-1978. Don had asked the then-CEO Ron Miller if he'd like to see our garage project, Banjo the Woodpile Cat. Ron said he had no interest in seeing it. Well, that pulled the enthusiasm rug right out from under us. We had hoped the studio might like what we were doing and agreed to buy the film and allow us to finish the short film in the studio, which would allow us to recoup what we had spent in terms of money and the many hours that we and the other members of the team had invested in the film. Miller didn't just say, no, we're not going to make this. He refused to watch it. Apparently what he said was, we don't encourage our animators to work after hours. Like he was just totally dismissive and disgusted, which like, you know, speaking as a manager of a company, if one of my employees came to me and was like, hey, for the last you know, four years, I have been working on this project that will help the company. And in this case, like, regardless of the quality of Banjo the Woodpile Cat, you put that short film in front of a movie, your young animators love you, you've just gotten free loyalty, right? Right. And they've been training themselves skills they want to use at Disney. Like, they had no intention of leaving Disney or, you know, striking out on their own. They just wanted to learn how to make Disney movies. And he's totally dismissive and refuses to even watch it. And so that is the straw that breaks the camel's back. And Bluth, Goldman and Pomeroy all turn in their resignations. And then 13 other animators follow suit. And so this group of animators leaves. They found Don Bluth Productions. They make The Secret of Nim, which I thought this was interesting. Ken Anderson had the idea for Secret of Nim. Ken Anderson, who we talked about extensively on Robin Hood and elsewhere, 
brought the book Mrs. Frisbee and the Rats of Nim to Don Bluth. And he said, read the book. And when you guys are in charge, I think you should make this movie. And Anderson had first brought the book to Willie Reitherman, but he was shot down. Apparently, Woolley told him, we've already got a mouse, referring to Mickey, and we've just done a mouse movie, referring to the rescuers. <laughs> so Bluth Productions makes The Secret of Nim, which is not a big success uh, financially, but is a huge commercial success. Everyone who sees it really likes it. And then they do release Banjo the Woodpile Cat as a Christmas special on television. You can actually watch it. Now, again, these were not big uh, financial successes, but they were seen by one guy. It's a little guy named Steven Spielberg, <laughs> who has just become the king of Hollywood. And so he sets them up with Amblin Entertainment, uh, and they are allowed to animate there. And that's how that's where Bluth makes all his movies. And Bluth goes on to. And reading about Don Bluth Productions made me a little sad because. Our podcast is absolutely following the bad guys of this story. <laughs> right. Because Don Bluth Productions, and I don't, you know, I don't think every movie Don Bluth made is a masterpiece. Secret of Nim, I believe I mentioned on the last episode I recently rewatched. I like it quite a bit. It is very much a movie that was made by animators in that the script and acting and story are very lacking, but it looks so incredible it makes up for it. <laughs> Yeah. You know, I don't think Don Bluth is a flawless, perfect person or anything. But the like model of Don Bluth Studios where animators would have the power and all of the animators had like profit sharing and were paid well and were treated well is so much better than Disney. And Disney really ends up killing them because Disney stumbles on a formula for making big successes and then does that forever. And there is a Quote from Don Bluth, where he says, uh, talking about the founding of Don Bluth Productions, where he says, the thought occurred to us that maybe if we went and did this, that the Disney studio would become a competitor. Competition is really what makes someone try harder. We needed Disney to try harder just to have competition. That was a very pompous attitude on our part, but it was in our mind that competition might wake the sleeping giant. And it actually did. <laughs> Unfortunately, he was absolutely correct, <laughs> and this would end up destroying him because Bluth Productions was a legitimate competitor to Disney, and that is why they had to kill it, and it certainly no longer exists. Yeah, but we'll get to that with the movies that actually did compete. Definitely, and all of the other guys we named end up leaving, I believe, around the time of Fox and the Hound as well, certainly left in the 80s. I know Brad Bird left during Fox and the Hound. Uh, he, you know, he wasn't well Bluth Productions guys, but he hated it. And then he goes off to Warner Brothers to make The Iron Giant, which is better than most Disney movies. <laughs> Everybody left Disney and then made great movies. And that's why eventually Disney will be like, get these guys back. <laughs> we'll talk more about the firing of John Lasseter on our bonus episode, because it's very important to that story. Mm -hmm. Tim Burton left during this time, but not as part of the Bluth group. I think Henry Selleck did as well. Basically, they all left. Musker and Clements stay. Which, you know, again, they're kind of like scabs in that sense. Like they, you know, <laughs> kind of betray the rest of their animation buddies to stay at Disney. But you got to give them this like it worked out for them. They were the last ones standing in that sense. Unfortunately, well, fortunately and unfortunately, nobody in this story is 100 percent good or 100 percent bad because it's not how history works. Right. And if you look at history, trying to pick out who's the good guys and bad guys, you will be disappointed. It was just a very difficult time for the company with the transition 
it's still, even though it's, you know, been 15 years, they're still dealing with the loss of Walt, it feels like. Definitely. And where's the company going? Is it going to go somewhere or are we just going to stagnate? And the fact that all these old guys aren't really retiring and passing on their knowledge or handing over the reins and we knew Walt, so we get to tell it like it is kind of stuff. It's just, it's a, it's a very odd transitional time. Right. That's exactly the problem is that following Walt's death, the plan was just have the nine old men keep making movies forever. Unfortunately, it's unsustainable. Their, their whole process was unsustainable, and this is the movie where it falls apart. We should say this is the last movie that had the involvement of Disney's nine old men. Frank Thomas and Ollie Johnston completed their animation by late 1978. Uh, they had animated some scenes of Todd and Copper. And so that's that's the end of the nine old men having involvement with movies is, is Fox and the Hound. And again, that should have been the moment where you hand it over to the young people and are like, what movie do you want to make? But that doesn't happen. Another big complaint that the animators actually had with Stevens showing that this movie was just a nightmare in all directions was that in the book, Chief, who is a pretty different character, as we said, the book is quite different, but is still, you know, ally to Copper, enemy to Todd. Todd does like run in front of a train. Chief gets hit by the train. He falls into the ravine, as in the movie. But as would happen if you got hit by a train and fell into a ravine and are a dog, he is quite dead. And interestingly enough, in the book, his death doesn't really inspire Copper to turn against him. What it inspires the master to do is train Copper to ignore all other foxes and just chase down Todd. So Ron Clements, for example, said that Chief has to die. The picture doesn't work if he just breaks his leg. Copper doesn't have the motivation to hate the fox, which I must say I totally agree with. And all of the like members of the story team, all the animation team members were practically begging Stevens to kill Chief because the movie doesn't make any sense otherwise. This, what we're told, is a profound friendship. In order for it to turn around and for them to be enemies, it has to be something at the level of death of a father figure, right? Like it has to be something really, really serious. It can't just be as it is in the final movie, Chief breaks his leg and seems basically fine and is making jokes about his broken leg and is playing up the pain for more sympathy. Just besides the logic of the scene of he gets hit by a train, falls into a ravine with sharp rocks and isn't even like bleeding. <laughs> not to be morbid, that's not what will happen. Right. But Stevens said, we never killed a main character in a Disney film and we're not starting now, which makes me especially mad because Bambi exists. Yeah, it's so true. Like, even if you're on the, we only have to do what Walt would do. Walt would kill a kid. Walt killed Bambi's mom, personally. <laughs> he pulled the trigger. <laughs> he was on the grassy knoll. <laughs> Perhaps even more tellingly, Ollie Johnson's test animation of Chief stomping around the house with his leg in a cast was kept. Mm -hmm. It's Ollie Johnston's animation of Chief not being dead. I wonder if that played a part of it, right? If it's like, well, the nine old men animation has to stay in. 
So that's indicative. We could tell a lot more stories. Again, this is the movie that drives kind of all of the good animators away. As a result, the release date is pushed because, again, the whole team fled to work with Don Bluth. (laughs) So they had to hire a bunch of assistant animators who really were not ready to take over because if Don Bluth wasn't ready to take over. Yeah. And these these are the people who weren't hanging out with him in his garage learning processes. Exactly. And that's why some of the animation in this movie is quite good and some of it looks like garbage. Yes, it is so uneven. Because it was made by 180 different people, literally. And all of Bluth's animators asked to have their names removed from the film. Wolfgang Reitherman's name was removed from the film out of spite. So that's what I'm talking about with all the weird crediting of this movie crediting and lack of crediting critically this movie was not well received at the time at all i saw i can't i i can't find the exact quote but i saw somewhere a review that was talking about like it has 60 minutes worth of good content unfortunately it's 90 minutes long (laughs) wish i could find the exact review because i yeah that's funny i pretty much agree with that except 60 is is quite generous Mm-hmm. It was very not well reviewed at the time. It didn't help that, again, all these stories are coming out. Like, as soon as Don Bluth leaves Disney, he starts talking to the press about, like, yeah, it's a nightmare. Some people liked it. Roger Ebert notably uh, liked it. He said, for all of its familiar qualities, this movie marks something of a departure for the Disney studio and its movement is in an interesting direction. And he he talks about like he the message of the movie and the fact that it's about society and it's not just all silly speaks to him. And now a lot of people really like it. And we'll talk about this being one of the best of the Bronze Era. I think one thing we're realizing as we look at the reviews is that every film of the Bronze Era is somebody's favorite, probably except Black Cauldron. I bet we find somebody who loves it. Maybe we will. We probably will. But... A lot of people like it now, and I think what a lot of people connect to it is, first of all, if you have nostalgia for it because you watched it as a kid. But second of all, I think some people do like the darkness and that it's kind of trying to have a message. But I agree with you. It's just not executed. The movie is too many cooks, too many things being pulled in too many different directions. And most importantly of all, it's incredibly boring. <laughs> the thing is, I can see that they were trying to do something different. At least some of the people working on it were trying to do something different. And I can see that they were trying to put a good message in there. And I can appreciate those parts. But the overall effect of it, as you say, is boring. The overall effect of the movie is just not good. If you're a child, maybe, as you said, you can have nostalgia for it when you get older and it can be something that you enjoy more. But having only watched it as an adult, I just can't focus on it very well. It just loses me. It loses me. It's a movie that dares you to pay attention to it. Mm-hmm. And truly, like if I did not have to take notes, if we were not covering this movie, I don't think I could have made it through it. It is beyond everything else. And we'll talk about I think this movie has a lot of failures. Above all else, it simply fails at being a piece of entertainment. It is slow. It is dull. It has the least energy of almost any movie I've ever seen. The title is the entire premise and plot. <laughs> and who knows? You know, maybe Don Bluth could have made a great Fox and the Hound movie. Maybe literally any of those guys could have made a great Fox and the Hound movie. Tim Burton's Fox and the Hound would be fascinating. (laughs) 
Everybody would be dead. <laughs> Everybody's dead. They're they're all corpses. Who knows? You know, Brad Bird's Fox and the Hound. Certainly. I mean, these guys, a lot of them did go on to make movies that were a little darker, had a little more edge to them. And that would have suited this movie well. But it just I think it's an abject failure. Uh, we can talk about the casting a little bit. There isn't too much to say as far as the background, but there are some interesting people working on this. Mickey Rooney was hired off of Pete's Dragon. Mm hmm. To do the voice of grown-up Todd. Yes, Mickey Rooney, uh, a very famous actor, started as a child actor, was in a million things. I mean, I, I don't even know how to... It's <laughs> Mickey Rooney. Yep. Kurt Russell, uh, one of the greatest of all time, in my opinion, a, an actor who just elevates everything he's in except the fox and the hound, <laughs> and who started as a Disney child actor, basically, and who famously was, when Walt Disney died, he had recently met with Kurt Russell and the last thing Walt Disney ever wrote were the words Kurt Russell on a piece of paper. <laughs> and that is part of why they signed him to a 10 year contract and tried to make him a big star. Because, again, like everything else, oh, uh, Walt Disney wrote Kurt Russell. So we have to do Kurt Russell now. But Kurt Russell is great. He'll really uh, find his stride and become a huge actor uh, when he teams up with John Carpenter, especially Escape from New York is his big break. Mm -hmm. This is not it. It didn't it say somewhere that he only came in and recorded for like two days and that was it. Yes, he recorded his dialogue in two recording sessions. Right, right, right. That's what it was. While filming his first collaboration uh, with Carpenter, which is the television film Elvis, in which he plays Elvis. Yeah. One of these two things led to future careers for him and it wasn't Fox and the Hound. <laughs> Pearl Bailey is Big Mama. We do have to shout out. She's not given nearly enough to do in this movie, but she is a, a legendary African-American entertainer. Huge star by this time. Wonderful singer. Broadway star as well. And she's in this movie. I feel like they kind of want her to be the Phil Harris or similar, where it's like, you'll be a little more fun. You'll be kind of a wise parental figure. You know, you'll have the songs, but it, it doesn't. It doesn't work. It's not her fault. Jack Albertson is Amos Slade, who was a, a very he won a Tony and Oscar and an Emmy. He was a very successful actor, best known to me and probably most of our listeners as Grandpa Joe in the original Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory. Yeah, I think he's quite awful in this movie. I'm sorry to say I may, I'm not sure if it's just the character is so bad. But yeah, you don't ever want to see him. Maybe he's, you know, one of those actors who's a great actor who can't translate his skill to voice work. But maybe I, this is one of the first performances in a Disney movie where I'm like, this is really quite bad. <laughs> I, I don't know what else to say, but uh, Sandy Duncan is Vixie. Sandy Duncan, actress, comedian, singer, dancer, also a big star known for playing Peter Pan on Broadway, among other things. Most of the rest of our actors are, uh, you know, kind of the new class of Disney ringers. We have Pat Buttram once again as Chief, which I think is terrible casting. I'll talk about why. We have John Fiedler as the Porcupine doing nothing. Yeah. We have Paul Winchell as Boomer the Woodpecker. We have Corey Feldman, interestingly enough, as Young Copper. Uh, I did notice that Jeanette Nolan and John McIntyre are back. They were both in The Rescuers also, and they're actually a married couple. I thought that was funny when I... I hadn't noticed when I was looking at the stuff on The Rescuers that they're actually a married couple. Interesting. I did not recognize their names. She did Ellie Mae and he did Rufus in The Rescuers. And in this, she does Widow Tweed and he does 
um, the badger. There you go. Pretty minor voice roles, but they're back. You could say they're becoming part of the Disney stable as well. All right, let's get into the not nearly enough plot of this boring, boring movie. So this movie starts similarly to Rescuers in that instead of starting directly with the credits, it starts with like a little bit of story and it starts so quiet. We were both like, is our volume on? Are you hearing anything? I'm not hearing anything. Right. Is Disney Plus broken? Exactly. Because there wasn't any sound. No, this movie starts extremely quiet, very foggy. You kind of hear some vague animal noises, you know, like crickets or like birds. And there is no opening credits music at all till almost the end of the credits. Right. And I think the score to this movie is not always used well, but it's okay. We maybe should talk about Buddy Baker. Yeah. Was the composer. I mean, it. I don't I didn't find it very memorable, any of the score, but I think it's okay in parts. I don't know. Maybe I'm just desperate. (laughs) (laughs) But yes, we start with uh, a couple of foxes being chased by a dog who we don't see. We don't see the dogs. We don't see the hunters. But we see a mother fox carrying her kit as she's running from the hunters. I was curious, was it a mother? Well, everything I saw like online seemed to say describe it as the mother fox. There is no distinguishing characteristics in the movie. <laughs> right. So then I, I guess we got to have a mom status. Exactly. I was going to say we're, I'm going to presume mother fox so that we can have a mom status. Mother Fox is shot by the hunters. Yeah. And she did. And it should be noted, like, you know, we've been talking about with the broads are like, oh, this movie's ripping off mostly 101 Dalmatians or Lady and the Tramp or it's trying to do this. This one decides to rip off Bambi, sort of. In some ways, most like Bambi, but also not very much like Bambi. So the the Mother Fox brief hides her baby and then runs away and gets shot and basically sacrifices herself so that the baby can survive. And this to me is an early example of the tonal problems of this movie. Mm -hmm. And I have to say, this movie made me appreciate Bambi a lot more. I know when we record our episode, I was like, I respect this movie a lot, but I'm a little cold on it emotionally. Watching this made me appreciate how much better it is because like Bambi's (laughs) mom's death in that, which is Basically the same of like gunshot off screen. Right. Then you have the snow Bambi running around in it. You eventually have, you know, him meeting his maybe father. Like it's a very well done moment. And they do it like just right of this is how you can do a major character death in a kid's movie. Art Stevens. Mm hmm. No, they just get it over with real quick at the beginning of this movie. Right. And with this, after she does, we immediately smash into we meet Big Mama, the Pearl Bailey character who's a big owl. And she introduces us to uh, Boomer, the woodpecker and Dinky, the he's a sparrow, Binky, the sparrow. And they start doing like silly bits and whoa, whoa, we're having fun. It's like, can I sit in uh, the protagonist's mother being killed at all? Nope, we just got to get that over with real quick. Don't want to have those feels. I I guess. And uh, Boomer is amazingly just the Tigger voice because we talked about how Paul Winchell Tigger is not what his actual voice sounds like. It's sort of similar, but he's doing a part. Boomer not only has the Tigger voice, he does the Tigger laugh, which is a weird 
choice and feels like like so much of the bronze era like the movie's just going hey do you remember this other movie you like better and it's like well yeah (laughs) i was wondering if they actually asked him to do that voice again like we love your tigger voice that is my suspicion because he could since he could do other voices i feel like he would have right that's that's my conspiracy theory is that they asked him to just do the tigger voice and the tigger laugh Anyway, so Big Mama decides that to take care of the the little fox, she needs to, she gets these other bird friends of hers to trick the widow Tweed, whose name we do not get like ever in the movie. No, never said. But anyway, her it's it's the widow Tweed. They say widow at one point. They never say Tweed. They steal some laundry off her clothesline. She chases it. They drop it on the baby fox. And so she finds it and she's like, oh, and she adopts him. They specifically steal her underwear because these are our comic relief characters. Mm-hmm. They are. And uh, she names the fox Todd, which is short for toddler, she says. But Todd is an old word, like an old English word for fox. Right. It's just a word that means fox, which I'm sure is why the fox is named Todd in the original book. Yes, uh, absolutely. Absolutely. It's just very strange that they decided to explain it by, oh, you're such you're you're such a little toddler. I'll call you Todd. Uh, I don't know. It just feels like everything in this movie is like, what's the stupidest version of this story? What's the most obvious (laughs) way we can do it? So then, of course, we have to introduce the hound, Widow Tweed's neighbor, Amos Slade. This is all not clear, by the way. We don't get his name for a long time. We don't find out that they're neighbors for a while, but we're just letting you know straight up at the front. (laughs) The geography of this movie is so bad. Yeah. They even kind of do a pan from her place to his, and it still wasn't clear to either of us that they were neighbors. (laughs) Anyway, he brings home a hound dog puppy and names him Copper, presumably because of his color. Yes, I believe so. And he tells his old dog, Chief, to look after him like, here's a baby dog. Bye. (laughs) You're a toddler. Toddler sounds kind of like Copper. Your name is Copper. I think that's the reason. (laughs) And uh, no, by the way, the way that you raise a puppy is not just to leave it with an unrelated different type of male dog, in, in case you're wondering. Which would be fine if this movie was fun and not taking itself seriously, but when it is serious, the lack of realism of it you bump up against. And they have sort of a cute moment where Chief decides he likes the puppy, but at this point, you know, the movie has already been happening for 9 to 12 hours, and it's, <laughs> it's a lot to deal with. This is followed by a sequence that was animated by Don Bluth, the entire cow-milking uh, scene. So... Todd, the little fox. I think they've gotten a little bigger. Maybe it's been, you know, a couple of weeks at least. I think it's like the Bambi thing where they've gone from nonverbal to verbal. Right. So he comes into the barn while the widow is milking her cow, Abigail, and he ends up causing some trouble, getting making a mess. And really, all he does is like briefly spooks a chicken. I think he looks at the chicks and foxes, of course, real foxes actually like to kill and eat chickens and, you know, all that stuff. And so the chicken sees the fox and freaks out, even though the fox is not really doing anything. He's just curious and exploring and causes a big old ruckus. And so the widow sends him outside to play. This scene isn't funny. Neither of us are laughing. And if it serves a role in the story, it should be his first introduction of like, I want to play with or hang out with this chicken. And it fears and distrusts me because I'm a fox. But the music is going like, 
it's wacky. Yes. Um, and then, yeah, the, the fox finally talks. It feels like it's been a long time. And it talks to Boomer and Dinky, who don't want to talk to him because they are doing a hilarious bit with, with a caterpillar named Squeaks. Yep. This is their main bit. The two birds are trying to catch and eat this caterpillar, which they mostly just call a worm named Squeaks. Yeah. And the whole thing is they're chasing this worm because birds eat worms. And the reveal at the end of the movie is that this is actually a a, a caterpillar and it turns into a butterfly, which is spoiled because at the end of the credits, it says and Squeaks the caterpillar. In order to do that not very funny joke, they ruin a better joke. I didn't remember Squeaks at all, but I knew it was a caterpillar because it said in the credits. You know, it would be like if Lady and the Tramp opened with Trusty cannot actually remember the old reliable story (laughs) as the text at the beginning of the movie. (laughs) By default, this is my favorite scene because this is the one scene where I had a chuckle. It wasn't even a full laugh, really. But I did go like, huh. <laughs> and that was specifically at the moment where Boomer, uh, the woodpecker, you know, they're like creeping up on the caterpillar. It's very slow, like everything else in this movie. And they're like, get him. And Boomer woodpeckers with all of his might destroys a tree and like pulls back with a big, huge piece of bark impaled on his beak. It was an actual funny moment of like, you know, Quiet, quiet, quiet explosion of action. (laughs) You know, Boomer is kind of fun because it's Paul Winchell doing the Tigger voice. And that just like activates the deep nostalgia. And you're like, well, I guess I like this. So Mm -hmm. by default, this is the one scene that made me almost laugh. Therefore, it's the one scene where I almost had fun. Therefore, it is my favorite. That's my ringing endorsements. (laughs) I know the whole deal. Todd right now is trying to find someone to play with him. He wants someone to play with him. So he ends up bumping into Copper, who's also out exploring. Right. And this is also, I just want to say, the first moment where Chief talks. And I want to call this out because we love Pat Buttram. You know, we we had nothing but good things to say about him in Robin Hood. I think in general, we've been very kind to him throughout. But I think he is miscast as Chief. Like he's doing his best, but he's so silly. And Chief, his role in the story is to be a genuine threat. Like he wants to unambiguously kill Todd. Yeah, because that's his job. Right, and Todd needs to be scared of him and, like, he doesn't like Copper. He's very much a villain. And casting Pat Buttram as... I mean, clearly Pat Buttram can be a good villain with Sheriff of Nottingham, but it's not the same. Chief isn't supposed to be that kind of stupid, self-involved, somewhat funny type villain. He's... It should be Thurl Ravenscroft or somebody, right? Like, it should be somebody who's bringing gravitas. As with so much of the tonal disparity of this movie, I don't think Pat Buttram being chief is... I I think it's bad casting. Again, I don't think it's his fault. I think he's doing what he's being asked to do. But for this movie to work, I need Chief to be scarier and more interesting. And I need any of these characters to be characters. But as you say, now we have the, like, two minutes where the fox and the hound are friends. Right. And they're mostly friends for the length of Big Mama's Best of Friends song. Right, which includes the lines, a fox and a, or before she starts singing, she goes, a fox and a hound playing together. And it's just like, yeah, I get what the movie's about. Right. Uh, And then there is a bad song. 
I've already forgotten it, even though I had to listen to it several times <laughs> to do the beginning of this podcast. I have heard the song more times. When I was growing up, we would have the, you know, collected. You'd have like a song. Yeah. No. So you'd we'd get like, you know, four or five CD set, you know, the right. best of Disney. And they try to include a song from almost every movie. And this song would be on there to represent Fox and the Hound. Well, again, what else are you going to do? Yeah, it's on my current Disney Spotify playlist as well. And it's the song from Fox and the Hound. So I am familiar with it. I could sing it for you right now if you wanted. Don't really care. It's not my favorite song and it never really has been. So they have fun playing together. There's they play to, they hang out basically for a couple of days. They get together and play. And every time um, at the end, Copper's master is like whistling for him and is really bothered that he keeps kind of running off. Not that he's going very far. Now, I guess it's a couple of days in movie time, but in real time, it really is very brief. And if the whole movie is going to be based on the importance of this, like, foundational, life-changing, almost society-changing friendship. I need way more of it. Right. And they, Todd says, you know, we'll we'll be best friends forever, right? And Copper's like, yeah, sure. And, you know, that's it. (laughs) But basically... They're kids. They are. They're little kids. Todd is on the lookout for a friend. Copper isn't even like... He's not that into it. (laughs) He's not that into it. He's having a good time. But he has Chief, even though, you know, Chief's not like a friend. He's more like supposed to be a mentor, but he doesn't feel the loneliness that Todd's feeling. Right. And like the thing is, I'm sure when I was in elementary school, there were people who are as like, we will be friends forever. In fact, I can remember at least one example. And of course, that doesn't happen because we both, you know, we all grew up in in middle school. I had different friends in high school. I had different friends. College, I had different friends. By and large, I have different friends now. I have a very small number of people I've been friends with for a long period of time. Right. That's just life. Right. Exactly. Because that's just life. And so like it needs to be if this friendship's going to be for the whole movie, it needs to be a profound friendship. Not we played hide and seek for two days because that just makes me go later. Why is Todd so hung up on this? Right. You feel like he spent more time with the birds or even Big Mama they are more like his best friends than Copper ever seems to be. But again, it's just the fact that this movie didn't sell it for us. I compared it at one time. It's like this movie feels like it's trying to do like Sleeping Beauty did, where they just do the broad strokes of the story and you're expected to kind of fill it in. But the rest of the movie doesn't hold up enough to allow that to work. Sleeping Beauty is carried by being the best looking and sounding movie ever made. (laughs) And this is not. Yeah. And it's a fairy tale, too. And so you're familiar with the story, even if you've never seen the movie. This is something completely different. It just doesn't work. And like Robin Hood and Little John, you feel the weight of a lifetime of friendship with those two characters. It can be done. You can establish a profound friendship very quickly, but you need better actors and story and everything. (laughs) You need better everything. Yes. I just gestured to all of this movie. (laughs) (laughs) And so Chief uh, attacks Todd. And again, the wacky music is back. And like Copper introduces Chief. It's like, he can get awful mean. He's cranky, which again, then I need it to not be Pat Buttram. 
in this whole scene, they can't decide whether this is a funny chase scene or a dangerous kind of scary chase scene. I'm sure different animators working on it would have a different answer to what type of scene it is. Right. And again, Todd ends up running through the chicken coop, just trying to escape Chief and Chief runs through too. And then that's when Amos comes out and sees, oh no, the fox is trying to get the chicken. So he gets his shotgun and starts shooting. And this isn't even the funny, like Madame Medusa shooting and everybody's running and hiding, which was actually quite hilarious. This is, no, he's straight up trying to murder Todd and it's not funny. If we had watched the rescuers after this movie, I would have been much, much kinder to the rescuers because compared to this, the rescuers is the best movie ever made. (laughs) So of course he's chasing Todd. Todd sees the widow Tweed getting in her little car and driving off with, she has milk that she sells apparently. Cause apparently there's more people in this world besides these two, but we never see them. And the scene with these cars looks like oh, garbage. It's so bad. It is awful. Those cars at the background are not in the same dimension. <laughs> they are not. It's horrific. Anyway, of course, you know, he's shooting her milk cans and, She stops her car and gets all mad and tells him off and he gets mad and his face turns red and she shoots his car. Yeah. Like these two humans, they never react the way humans should react to any of this. Yeah. Uh, She doesn't react the way you'd expect for shooting at her and almost killing her. He doesn't react the way you'd expect for him, for her destroying his car. And he does not seem to be a rich man. Car's a big expense and almost killing him like it's just we're we're very just escalating with these two and they're just like oh amos you rapscallion almost killing me stone dead right and not being like also this is my pet fox leave it alone (laughs) no you can't shoot a pet and amos is constantly calling her female which is a weird energy to the whole proceedings Females is Pison, I guess. Remember that movie? I do. And it was funny. <laughs> <laughs> Remember how it had a joke? Yeah, it, had it had a song? Several. So now she's keeping Ted, uh, Todd rather cooped up for safety. Ted. <laughs> Todd cooped up for safety. And this is, I made us watch this three times on Disney+. Plus. There's just a moment here where Amos is is just walking up to Copper and Chief because they're going to go on a hunting trip. And he has... I can't even describe it. I sh- uh, hopefully I'll remember to post it on Twitter. The funniest, craziest walk cycle I have ever <laughs> seen in my life. It's so true. The way his arms and his legs and his hips and everything swings. It's like, wow, who did that? Were they copying somebody's actual walk style or what? Uh, or was this somebody not. who just didn't know how to animate a walk? <laughs> you know, overall, I feel like this movie looks better than The Rescuers, but The Rescuers is more consistent because of the number of animators who worked on this. Like sometimes, you know, you'll have the Glenn Keane bear sequence that's astonishing. Oh, yeah. And then you'll have this, which is also astonishing. <laughs> but not the same way. In that, how did you leave that in the movie? <laughs> yep. So then finally he comes up because he's telling the dogs that they're about to go on a hunting trip. <laughs> he's uh, he's shuffling. He's he's traveling up. Yes. And they're going to be gone until spring. For those who appreciate this joke, as he's walking, you get the haunting Torgo theme. And this is the fall that they're leaving to go on hunting, go out hunting. So apparently 
you know, he goes hunting for like five months. <laughs> right, and this is Six where we months. get the education or elimination song. Yeah. Elimination song. I think of it more as a song because of the other one later that it's definitely not. <laughs> it's kind of a chant, but it's a little bit of a song. It's a sl- it's a spectrum of does it a song. This one's in the middle. It is kind of a catchy little thing. Yep. Surprisingly catchy for a song that's about you will be murdered. It's basically you need to wise up and learn that when your friend, quote unquote, comes back from this hunting trip, he is not going to be your friend anymore because he's going to be a trained hunting dog. So be aware, be educated and don't get eliminated. Right. And again, she has a line about Copper's going to come back a trained hunting dog. And he's like, no, we're going to be friends forever. And you're like, it's been 48 hours and you played hide and seek twice. Also, of course, they play hide and seek because it's like a hunt. Do you get it? Is it this movie smart? It's for smart people. And I want to say here, like, I think this movie is very much trying to be a metaphor for real world human prejudices, right? Because the only reason to tell a story about animals is to make it equivalent to a story about humans, because unless you are doing like what the original book did and you are literally trying to get into the mind of an animal. And I think especially here, having a black woman, the first major character played by a black woman, you know, talking to the fox about like, listen, you either have to get smart or you're going to be killed by society. And, you know, this person from another part of society has power over you and will not be your friend. Like, I think it's very, very much a metaphor for racism. With that in mind, I hate where this movie ends up. If we take it as a real metaphor for racism or any kind of of human prejudice, a la Dumbo, for example, then I hate what the message of this movie ends up being. But we'll get there when we get there. First, we have the seasons changing, which is a scene we've seen done well in many Disney movies. And in here, it's done by the slowest still images of all time, boring you to death. Just just take it as read. There are many, many long, slow, boring moments in this movie. So then it's the spring. Big Mama's doing her spring cleaning of her owl hole and everybody's coming back. And right that we have them flying south for the winter. Oh, yeah, that's right. I forgot. Like in the middle of winter, we have another silly little scene with uh, Boomer and Dinky and the worm. And then literally the next scene on the farm, they come back like the, the end of that scene is we're leaving. We're going south for the winter. And then the very next scene is, and we're back. And it's like, great, I'm glad that this happened. And because again, we're just doing Bambi, but bad. And Copper, meanwhile, becomes a hunting fox and he gets to sit in the front. And They're coming back with the car and it is full of skins. Right, which I wanted to call out. We only see Copper helping Amos kill birds, but the car is full of fox and raccoon skins. It would be much more impactful if we saw him hunting foxes and maybe he's reluctant about hunting foxes at first because he remembers Todd but for some reason he gets into it like we need character from these characters desperately the fox and the hound is a complete summary of the of both characters Mm -hmm. there's nothing to them and you know I'm not saying we need to see foxes brutally shotgunned on screen but you could have something as tasteful as what we see with the birds with foxes but they, they can't lean into the darkness inherent of this story uh, because instead they just want to be boring and very bad. 
Yep. So as they're driving back, Copper does get to sit in the front seat and you can see that Chief is jealous of him. And now we have, you know, Kurt Russell and Mickey Rooney voicing Copper and Todd. And there's yet another squeaks sequence because there is no freedom for you. Yep. They're just going to keep happening. And then there is a scene of them hunting the fox again because this movie is so repetitive. It's just the same three scenes over and over. Yep. Todd comes to talk to Copper, uh, you know, being like, we're still friends. Can we hang out? And Copper's like, no, no, we are. We we are. We can't hang out anymore. I'm a hunting dog. I have killed 137 foxes. Yeah, I'm a hunting dog and that's my job. And it's just not going to work out between us. <laughs> and listen, you know, I yeah, we had fun a year ago for two days, but uh-huh, then uh-huh. I forgot you immediately. I, I have been yeah. on the other end of this friendship when somebody's like, aren't we best friends? And it's like, Yeah, years ago, I guess. But no, not anymore. (laughs) You don't know who I am anymore. So, of course, Chief wakes up again, chases Todd. There's a whole there's a whole bit. This one goes on a very long time, though. And this is where we get to the time where Todd is hiding under a woodpile and Copper has the best nose, Mm -hmm. Um, mainly because I think what we determined, I forget what the breeds are, but Chief is kind of more of a sight hound. Correct. Copper is a nose hound. And so he can smell Todd really well. And so he smells out Todd, sees him, and he's like, I'm going to let you go this time. This one time. This one time. But I'm never going to let, I won't let you go again. So just stay away and be safe. He's like, you know. And again, I feel like I need more of an explanation of why he's letting him go and an explanation of why he's saying the next time I see you, I will kill you. Because this character's motivation is is muddy. It's kind of a good line in isolation, but it only works because you're like, well, I know what this movie is going to be. Yep. Uh, and this is where Chief gets hit by a train. Right. Because because Todd doesn't stay hidden. He tries to sneak out. Chief sees him, chases him across the train track, and then Chief gets hit by the train and falls down. And it's narratively... You really expect him to be dead because that is what should happen here. <laughs> right. That is, and not, you know, because we're like, oh, I want to see a dog die. But yeah, that's just that is what the story is. You're you're cheating the story. But of course, the reason for this is so that Copper can blame Todd for Chief's injuries. And he's like, Todd, I will never forgive you for this or whatever he says. I didn't write it down word for word. Right. And again, like, so Chief attempting to kill his friend, not a problem for Copper. Todd inadvertently causing Chief to be very mildly wounded, unforgivable. None of this works. Yep. And then Amos is knocking down the widow tweed's door and is going to break it, does break into her home and is going to shoot her pet. That horrible thing. I messed up my dog, blah, 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 blah. And you're like, okay, call the cops, lady. Exactly. This is where widow tweed needs to call the police or do something more drastic because Amos is not just a threat to her dog. I mean, he is pointing the shotgun at her. This is like, your neighbor has flowed into a murderous rage. Exactly. You should be more alarmed. Instead, her reaction is to, and, and this does not make a lot of sense to me, is is to abandon Todd in the woods, like set him to be wild, which of course, if you have an animal who has been raised as a pet and then you put them in the wild, that animal will die. Yep. And they don't make it clear, but she is taking him to a game preserve 
so that at least he, he is being left where he will not be hunted. But this is not clear at all until much later. And this is where when they're driving along, she has the poem song, whatever that she kind of thinks Goodbye may seem forever. Awful, 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 awful. I thought they did a good job of animating her face in this scene where you can see how much she cares about Todd and how sad she is about letting him go. I'll agree, but the song is bad and the scene is nonsense and this would kill the fox. And if I was Widow Tweed and I did this, I would assume that Amos would be so mad he might kill me. Like Amos is really evil in this movie like pure evil he's a deranged deranged man yeah he's bad uh and also the terrible song does have a line that made me laugh like bitterly not on purpose which is just farewell is like the end which is just again like what a what a clever line you know farewell is like the end it's almost (laughs) like it's the word farewell but mom this I, this scene isn't obvious enough. I'm worried people might not know this is a sad scene. And so we have to have a <laughs> brainstorm so that you get it. Because as an audience member of this film, the makers of this film assume you are the <laughs> dumbest creature that has ever lived. You are a slug that has wandered into the movie theater. And so we have to make sure that the slugs in the audience can comprehend this movie. This is where we find out next Chief's actual injury is just a broken leg and he's playing it up. Yeah, Yeah. I hate this scene because not only is it just a broken leg, but the implication of the scene is that it doesn't even hurt that much. He's playing up how much it hurts for sympathy. So he's presumably barely hurt, which again is like, so you, the, the human and copper both are swearing a lifelong blood oath vendetta against this fox for like a stubbed toe. Yeah, which is, it's such, it's so wrongheaded, but we've talked about it a lot. And then they have, uh, the, the they're demonstrating a fox trap because that's going to be the big difference now is is that Amos is going to have a fox trap, uh, which also kind of comes to nothing. So Big Mama flies off to look for Todd and talk to him, I guess. And she bumps into another fox whose name is Vixie. This is the female fox, of course, voiced by Sandy Duncan. Vixie the Vixen. Slugs. Slugs screenwriting. So she's going to help Big Mama look. I don't know if it was doing this for you, but sometimes the picture was very blurry. And I was trying to decide if that was an uh, artifact of the streaming or if it was the movie or if it was... My TV doing a motion blur thing? No, I think the movie itself is very blurry. But as I said at the time, Sometimes, I think yeah. they're trying to do soft focus, but they're very bad at it. Yeah. Which is something Bluth was very good at. Like, he's very good at those animating things that look like camera movements or using camera movements in a clever way. But this just feels like a bad version of that. And, you know... The Twitter painted scene in Bambi, though a bit obvious, is quite good in that it's just like, you know what's going to happen here. It happened. It's a fun joke. It's a memorable moment. It's over quickly. We're telling the story of a life. Yeah. How would you like that? But it drags on forever and mm-hmm. ever and ever. And I think I'm still watching this scene. Yep. The meat cute. Even to the point where there's some kind of, I think they're geese walking by and she counts how many children there are. They're quails. Quails. And she's talking about like, 
six. Six is about right. And he's like, six what? And obviously she wants to have six kids. But even this, she has to go like one, two, three. And it's like, am I watching the electric company or what? <laughs> I understand how many there are. Everything is slow. I can't take it. Yeah. So they have to have the, they have the, the meet cute and then they have the disagreement and then big mama sings the uh appreciate the lady song and it's all good well the song is it all good well yeah but like their relationship it's all better now and again vixie's not a character obviously because nobody in this movie's a character she shows todd around and this is Probably one of my, I don't know if I would call it my least favorite or my favorite because it got the most reaction out of me. There is a waterfall in this scene that is quote unquote animated. (laughs) It is a still image of a waterfall with like a little river or a stream below it. And all they did was put occasional little twinkle lights on parts of it to look like something is moving above it. Like they're not even, you can, it's it's just like with the cars. It doesn't look like it's part of it. And even the slugs are like, well, that doesn't look like a waterfall. <laughs> well, it looks like a picture of a waterfall. It doesn't look like a cartoon <laughs> of a waterfall. It's a picture of a waterfall. It would be better if they took the like wartime era approach and just left it a still background. Yeah. Couldn't you have stolen a waterfall from some other movie? Aren't there any other previous movies that have a waterfall? You could just steal that. There's so many. (laughs) You you know what movie has a really prominent waterfall? Bambi. They're always stealing stuff from Bambi anyway. Just take it. Oh, it was so bad. I had to keep going on about it. Rightly so. It's uh, however bad you're imagining it looking. It looks much worse. And there is a waterfall later that looks Really good. <laughs> I think that's the part that was animated by Glenn Key. It is because it's in the, the later scene. We'll get to it. It's coming up. But this dichotomy of the movie is what bugs me so much about it. It's that they could do good animation and stuff, but they didn't always because of how the problematic elements of it. And I don't know. I feel like. Maybe they could have made this story work if they changed everything about it. But, you know, (laughs) (laughs) if you had better music that really engaged you and sucked you into the story, if you had better, like consistent animation at the very least, if it wasn't, you could have it be lower tier animation all the way through as long as it was consistent. If we still had uh, George Bruns doing the score, yeah. you know, as we talked about in Robin Hood, like his music makes you feel emotions so strongly that it can cover cheap animation. Yeah. 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 If any element of this movie was good. It, it might help, but it, it's really not. <laughs> so the hunters show up and uh, Amos immediately they break into the game preserve, of course. And Amos immediately puts seven fox traps right next to each other in the same clearing, which I don't think is how you're supposed (laughs) to do that. I'm no expert. And this is where we have the fight between the fox and the hound, which is super angry and scary and feels like it's from a different movie than the one we were just watching. It is, again, Glenn Keane animated, I believe, pretty much this whole fight. So, like, it's really well done Mm -hmm. visually. But at this point, I'm so... 
out of it. And I dislike these characters so much. It also appears to have a lot of ADR because there's a lot of them talking when their animated mouths aren't moving. So I don't know <laughs> if it's bad animation or my suspicion is ADR after the fact, because most of the lines that are like that seem to be the ones where they're like, you know, it's they're yelling what's going on. And I could believe that Glenn Keane just animated this like scene you can very easily follow visually. And, you know, this scene that could just be all visual and would probably be more effective that way. And they're like, oh, but the slugs, they have to, so they have to constantly <laughs> yell what they're doing so the slugs can understand. Yes. Amos ends up stepping in one of his own traps and Amos and Copper stir up a bear. Which is so annoying because this, you know, so Todd actually does fight Copper super briefly in this because Copper now has something to fight for, which is Chief. Todd now has something to fight for, which is his boring Fox wife. It should be the two of them fighting. And if they reconcile, it should be because the two of them reconciled. They are the main characters of the movie. This whole scene should be about them instead because they can't have one of them kill the other or even have them really fight each other or just commit to anything that would be emotionally compelling. As you say, they just stir up this bear and then it's the two of them versus the bear and it's like just this brand new last minute antagonist. I think part of it also is they wanted to include uh, the bear scene from the actual book, which is, I think, earlier in the book. But you know, this will make a great climactic sequence is to have the bear. But again, you're, it feels weird to throw it in there. Right. They've changed. They've changed so much. Right. In the book, the fox and the hound aren't friends. And they're also no. are hunting each other constantly. Or I guess right. the dog's hunting the fox. But you get it. Right. And yep. so, you know, you can have a scene with one of the hunting scenes is disrupted by a bear. With this, because they so focused in on these characters and made it a Romeo and Juliet story, minus the romance, of course, between the two of them. It has to be about the two of them. It almost felt like at the beginning of the scene that Todd had gone that way to like lead them past the bear's den and have the bear do the attacking for him. But that's probably giving the uh, story writers too much credit. Right. And if so, then it doesn't explain why Todd immediately turns around and saves them from the bear. To rescue Copper. Well, to rescue Copper. He doesn't care about Amos. But the bear was actually killing Copper, who's trying to protect Amos well, he was hey, he was breaking Copper's leg. He wasn't going to kill Copper. He was just going to hurt his paw a little bit. <laughs> uh, okay, well, <laughs> Copper's getting big boo-boos. And so Todd... <laughs> oh that's funny so todd comes to rescue him which doesn't ring true for me at all yes todd and the bear fall down the waterfall but of course todd survives he only got (laughs) he he got got some medium (laughs) boo-boos and amos of course is has somehow managed to hobble his way down to the bottom of the waterfall which this is the waterfall that looks really good because he still has a, a fox trap on his foot. So, you know, he's it's probably supposed to be the same waterfall. But again, the geography of this <laughs> no, movie, you can't not. follow. It's not the same. Waterfall. <laughs> I just assume there's multiple because that one ain't the same at all. <laughs> You're saying that in fiction, there's a cardboard cutout of a waterfall in a game <laughs> preserve with like yep. Christmas lights. On exactly. It. Exactly. That's what's going on. That's what's that other waterfall. Uh, it has delusions of grand. 
Andrew. <laughs> <laughs> and yes, so there's there's a scene that plays out exactly like you expect, where Amos is going to shoot Todd. Copper sort of protects him, even though Amos very much has a clear shot. And up to this point, Amos has only liked Copper in so much as he's been useful. Like, right. when he's a good hunting dog, he appreciates him. He doesn't seem to have any affection for Copper beyond that. Well, with, again, Copper not having a character beyond being a hunting dog. But here, for some reason, he's not willing to shoot Copper, by which I mean he's not willing to shoot near Copper. Again, he has a very clear shot. Mm -hmm. And again, like, if this were a better movie that had earned any of this, maybe this is a good scene. But at this point, you're just like, yeah, of course, whatever. This is what happens. Like, I thought I remembered that this movie ended with one of the two characters dying. I feel like it maybe should. <laughs> Sincerely, I feel like maybe it should. Like, that's that's kind of the darkness in this movie is like, I feel like one of them should kill the other or lead to the death of the other and then regret it. And then like, that's how they've learned a lesson or something. But again, they just zero consequences for anyone or anything. And then we have another scene with the two birds, Boomer and Dinky, and they're trying to get the worm. We got to pay off this. Weren't you invested in this? Oh, the worm is a butterfly. What a surprise. Oh, and I, I do have to say, by the way, when Squeaks eats the flower uh, in the scene after like winter, uh-huh. I forgot to mention, Dinky does say, OK, Boomer, we got him trapped. It is important that Dinky says, OK, Boomer, in this movie. Yes, yes, I forgot about that. We have to talk about this other thing that I really hate, which is Widow is tending to Amos and healing him and like trying to deal with his foot. And they're all like, oh, you rascally old woman. And she's like laughing. She's like, oh, Amos, you rapscallion or whatever. You know, I'm paraphrasing. And it's like, no, he has tried to kill you multiple times. He calls you female. And like, this was my fear at the beginning of the movie when she's constantly talking about how lonely she is and that's why she adopts a feral fox, which is not a wise idea either. I wouldn't say feral, I would say wild. And it's like, is this going to end with her and Amos being friends or being in a relationship? And that is kind of where it ends. And it's like, no, he's a monster. He is kind of a monster. So I hate that. And then the, the foxes show up, uh, Vixie and Todd, and they are looking down at Copper, who does not look up or see them. And we hear the Friends Forever line, because again, the slugs wouldn't remember the line that has been referenced 97 times. And then the end. But but it doesn't leave you feeling good. It leaves you feeling like, ugh. I have survived to the end. So real quick, here's why I hate if we take this movie as a metaphor for like racism or for mm -hmm. societal discrimination, which I think it wants to be. Yep. And which like yep. many critics at the time talked about it being this movie's final assertion is that, well, there's nothing you can do. Like uh, copper does not learn to like foxes more. Todd does not change the minds of the dogs who are trying to kill. He doesn't change society. He's not changing life for other foxes. It's just, you will eventually age into the role society puts you in and there's nothing you can do about it. And our characters don't even try. Like if it was, they tried to change things and it failed. Like again, if Todd like is like, I refuse to fight Copper. We said we would be friends forever and something bad happens to him and Copper realizes that he was wrong. Like that could be a, that could be a tragedy. You know, you could have that kind of sad ending that's actually saying something. But this ending is just, there's nothing you can do. Mm -hmm. 
Different types of people are fundamentally different and nothing changes and it doesn't matter. And, you know, in one of her songs, Big Mama is talking about like your natural, like you are natural enemies. And they're not really humans trained dogs to hunt foxes. They weren't particularly natural enemies of foxes, which is interesting. You could have something there and it kind of seems like the movie might be doing that at first of like, you know, no human beings are born racist or prejudiced or anything. It is something that society tells them to be and they internalize it, which is like you could, in that sense, this could be a great metaphor for prejudice of the human has taught you to hate foxes, but we don't see that happening. We just, right. it's inevitable that he will become a hunting dog and then sure enough it is, which suggests that for these characters, prejudice is natural, which if you read it as a metaphor, I know it's all bad. It is. I feel like they were trying to do something, but we can look at it now and say, you did not do it well. Right. You did not take it far enough. You didn't get across the message you were trying for. And again, some of the defenders of this movie, I talked about the Ebert review from the time. We'll talk about like, well, this is a movie with a strong societal message. And if you mm-hmm. believe that the message is awful it's really really awful so either it's not a message movie in which case it's merely boring or it is a message movie in which case it's like offensive it's like actively not a good message for kids yeah or anyone so it's it's a complete failure astonishingly it did have sequels spin-offs remakes rides and shoot me with a shotgun (laughs) with a clear shot you have between the legs of your uh, hunting dog. I'm pretty sure it only had sequel, though. I think so. Yeah, I don't think you're, you get to meet Todd and Copper in the parks. No. I will say, though, there is a picture that apparently Amos Slade, his his car in his car, was in the Main Street Electrical Parade for a while, which I'm like, why? What on earth? That's I can't believe that. That's awful. There's a, I hate there's a that. picture. I, I hate it, too. And I've I seen the electrical you. parade a ton of times, and I don't remember ever seeing him in it. So I'm wondering if that was a very limited time thing, only for when the movie was out. I couldn't find any details, but there is an actual picture. So The Fox and the Hound 2 is a direct-to-video sequel. One of the last direct-to-video sequels uh, Disney did, followed only by Cinderella 3, A Twist in Time, uh, of course, an American masterpiece, and The Little Mermaid, Ariel's Beginning. So you can see they were kind of out of ideas to make sequels for. Now, I was not going to watch any part of this or even pay attention to it because I was like, oh, a worse version of Fox and the Hound? Don't mind if I don't. It should be talked about a bit, though, because it's insane. (laughs) It's truly insane. I watched a little bit of it, was not going to watch the whole thing. But it stars Reba McCanter and Patrick Swayze as two other dogs. uh, And there's a few other dogs as well who are part of a band called the Singin' Strays that's an acapella group. And Todd and Copper meet them. The whole movie takes place when Todd and Copper are kids, you know, so like it's a midquel. And they are going to the county fair and Copper joins the Singin' Strays lying about being a stray. And Todd is jealous of his fame. And that's what's driving them apart in this movie. Not that Copper is going to be trained to hunt and kill Todd, but that the fame is going to the dog's head. <laughs> it's a mix of like Fox and the Hound and Sing. Yeah. <laughs> and the dog <laughs> band 
wants to perform well because a talent scout from the human Grand Ole Opry will be at the fair. So do they do they sing with words or do they sing with arr, 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 like in Lady and the Tramp? Both. Oh, it's okay. it's normally it's words, but then when they're singing, I, I believe I, I didn't watch a movie, but I believe when they are singing for the human talent scout who does sign them at the end of the movie. I assume they are just making dog sounds and we are not letting humans hear dogs speak. And so Todd like ruins Copper's sweet gig by explaining that he's not a stray. <laughs> and then so he gets kicked out of the band and the singing strays performance is sabotaged in front of the talent scout. And it's 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 it's, it's a nightmare. And it's like, what is this movie, I, I wish I could have found more production information because I would love to know at what point the sequel to Fox and the Hound became this. I will say I do appreciate that they focused in on what is one of the main problems with Fox and the Hound. It's that we can't believe in their friendship because they only hang out with for two days. Right. So we'll have they actually were friends for longer. Check it out. They had this whole adventure so there's actually more of a relationship there than you thought. The animation is more consistent and it has real songs. So it almost might be better than the first one, but it's painful in a completely different way. Uh, <laughs> just I wouldn't recommend either. And that's where we get to the end of the show. We rate these movies. Would you recommend it? Would you show it to a child? Mom, would you recommend this movie? No, I would not. Is this my first one? I, I'm not sure. Because I think all my others have at least been qualified. Did you recommend guesses. Melody Time? Yeah, I I don't know. I think I recommended parts of it. <laughs> That's very possible. Uh, but this is worse. This is the worst thing it we've covered on the show. Time. It is. It's one of the worst of the entire canon, if not the single worst. I would not recommend it. I don't think I'm likely to even show it to a child just because then I would have to watch it again. Right. And also, it's not going to hold their attention and like... It's boring. There's nothing there. It's both too dark for a child and it's too boring for a child. And I don't know, like I have a coworker who I was talking to who said she has nostalgia for this movie. And I mean, I guess, but just show him Bambi. Just show him Bambi. It's at least a better movie or anything else. Show them, <laughs> show them wallpaper. <laughs> Do we have any final thoughts before we announce next week's movie? I think we pretty much covered Fox and the Hound. The, my final thought is, huzzah, we're done with it. <laughs> but next week, we're covering another bad movie. It's 1985's The Black Cauldron. What do you think of this movie, Mom? I am very interested to see what you think of it because you've never seen it. And it's based on a great book series. Uh, it's based on a wonderful book series. And uh, when I say the movie's bad, that's based on reputation. Maybe I'll love it. Mm -hmm. Probably not. Maybe you will. I don't know. You you do like bad movies. Come back next week and find out about the Black Cauldron. Yeah. These two movies collectively are referred to, were referred to by people who worked at Disney during this time as the low point or rock bottom. So join us next week for more rock bottom. <laughs> Until then, I'm me. I'm mom. It all started with a mouse, not a fox, neither a hound. It's a mouse. <laughs> Thank <laughs> you.